Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. For this week's release, we are republishing one of the earliest episodes, an interview with Rick Knight about the importance of private ranch lands to wildlife conservation and habitat connectivity. This is one of my favorites, but it is one of the least listened to pieces, probably because there weren't that many listeners four years ago when we first ran it. The importance of private ranch lands to wildlife conservation is not a small thing, but I feel like it's not talked about enough. It's not talked about enough in the ranching community, namely the importance of managing privately owned grazed rangelands for habitat attributes, which doesn't take that much effort in my opinion. And it's not talked about enough in wildlife and range circles, probably because they feel like it's something that they, agency people, can't affect anyway. And there's a perception, which is often a misperception, that ranchers don't care. And of course, there's also the perception that Ranchers just ruin rangelands by mismanaging cows. I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that there are not many ranchers anymore who are persistently overgrazing because the business can't persist long term that way. The second is that ranchers who are managing grazing well, but on landscapes with legacy scars from overuse, don't get enough credit for the wildly important work of promoting regeneration of these lands through smarter grazing. Sometimes the change in landscape happens quickly, and in some places it takes a little while. Over the next couple of years, you will hear from more ranchers on the Art of Range that they do care and actually make a lot of management decisions about grazing with wildlife in mind. Well, Richard Knight has done a lot of important social work bringing these groups of people together, groups that are often at odds, or they mutually think they're at odds, which reinforces the division, even if it's not as real as they all think. In my experience, in a similar space, it's my impression that ranchers and wildlife folks often don't have that much daylight between their landscape goals. I like the term landscape goal, which I've borrowed from Dave Duncan, a local rancher I've known for 25 years, and I don't know where he got it. The famed guitarist Chet Atkins told Clint Black in a song one time, if you're going to steal something, forget where you got it. But a landscape goal is the plant community, the plant community structure, uh, the wild bird and animal species uh, that are present, and the various contributions of nature to people that a person has a vision for in their mind's eye. And the wildlife biologist often has about 95% overlap with the rancher on that vision. It's not a matter of trying to close an, an ideational gap where there's daylight between the circles. It's a matter of acknowledging that we already agree on what ought to be. We just disagree a bit on the means by which we maintain what's good or improve what's lacking. The rancher sees that landscape with all of those values, and there are cows on it. The biologist sees it without cows and believes that cows will jeopardize those values. I realize this is a bit of a caricature, but it's not too far off. Uh, the cows might jeopardize those values, but not if we graze it right. And I, in 
Uh, in the most recent episode, Anna-Claire Monlezun just described that even our research questions, aside from our social interactions, could and should focus on commonalities instead of highlighting and defining and measuring all of our differences. Uh, and that is exactly what Rick Knight is talking about when he speaks of the radical middle, capital R, capital M. Those of us who are in this middle are not denying the differences. We're using the massive amount of agreement to make progress in making a difference in the real world. This re-release includes the entirety of our original interview, which was split up between two, two episodes. So it is a bit long, but it's worth listening to. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today on the show is Dr. Richard Knight from Colorado State University. Uh, Rick, welcome. Thanks, Tip. Glad to be here. We're going to get into talking about some of the issues around social sustainability of, of ranching and maybe where we're at in that national conversation, to use an overused term. Uh, but before we get there, I think that what you do is pretty interesting. I've spent a fair bit of time in this space between uh, the ranching community and the environmental activist community and have found that there's quite a lot of common ground there. And you've spent a lot of time exploring that common ground and trying to try to make it bigger. Uh, how did, what do you do now for Colorado State University and how did you end up doing that for a living? Um, <laughs> well, truth, truth be told, I think the stuff that I have been doing working with ranch families across the American West is something I do in my private time. Uh, it turns out that I am a professor of wildlife conservation. So um, supposedly my graduate students, you know, focus on conducting wildlife research and the courses I teach um, focus around conserving natural resources. It just so happened, it, it was a roundabout way tip. I was on the, uh, the board of governors for the Society for Conservation Biology for 11 years. And these were back in those, sort of those days of cattle free by 93. And I was noticing that my colleagues on the board of governors for the Society for Conservation Biology were pretty adamant against ranching as a legitimate land use in the American West. And incidentally, they were also pretty adamant against logging and water development for that matter, G for, for that matter, and energy development as well. So um, because I had done extensive field work in ranch lands on private ranch lands across the American West. I was a little bit puzzled by it. It was my sense that these ranches, particularly when we were comparing them with public lands, supported much healthier populations of wildlife. And, you know, I had never taken a course in range science. Um, I was, you know, I was aware there was a society for range management and I knew that you could get an undergraduate degree up to a PhD in range science. And I was aware of all that, but I'd never paid any attention to it. To me, rangelands were just another component of wildlife habitat. So I started kind of digging in and I started asking colleagues, where was the literature that said raising livestock on Western rangelands was detrimental to the maintenance of biological diversity? And I 
I was really start for the first time in my life as kind of a young PhD, I was starting to realize, well, scientists um, can do value driven work as well. And we, we used to always think science was um, was uh, colorblind. It didn't see black. It didn't see white. It was just the facts, ma'am, and see what the facts tell us. Meanwhile, I was living in Colorado and Colorado, like a number of Western states, was experiencing this phenomenal population increase. And these were the days when people, when they moved to Colorado, they were, they wanted to live the Colorado dream. And the Colorado dream was having acreage and a couple of horses and hunting elk in the fall and wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and snap shirts and stuff like that. And so all this phenomenal growth, certainly uh, a certain amount of it was occurring in towns and cities, but, but increasingly it was occurring on former ranch lands. So we had 35 acre ranchettes invading the land just as rapidly as we were seeing herds of uh, black Angus depart. And I was looking around and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, we're losing literally the size of Rocky Mountain National Park, which is a quarter of a quarter of a million acres. We're losing that much of private uh, farm and ranch lands in Colorado every year to this in-migration of people who wanted to come and, and buy 35 acres and live the Colorado dream. So I was I was sort of seeing this enormous demographic shift taking place across the West. And at the same time, as a professor of wildlife conservation and on on the editorial board of the journal Conservation Biology and on the board of governors of the society, I was hearing all of my colleagues say these horrible things about raising livestock as a land use. I was trying to reconcile all this. And I think the thing that really kicked this off I, with funding from the NRCS, I was able to have a graduate student look at biodiversity. In this case, it was carnivore communities, neotropical migratory songbird communities, and plant communities on three different land uses. They were working cattle ranches. They were former cattle ranches that had been sold to a developer and subdivided into 35-acre ranchettes. And they were protected areas in which livestock had been removed 35 to 40 years ago. And importantly, all three of these study areas were at the same soil type, same plant community, and the elevation was the same. And Jeremy Maestas, who's now a wildlife biologist with the NRCS, Jeremy's study revealed that, believe it or not, it was the working cattle ranches that supported the most amount of biological diversity that conservationists believe is valuable and is also under threat. Not surprisingly, the 35-acre ranchettes, unfortunately, had bird communities and plant communities and carnivore communities that you might find in a city suburb. Because of that influence of a family every 35 acres, it had homogenized those those former wildlands, you know, the working wildlands of a cattle ranch into pretty much what we'd find in a Fort Collins, Colorado suburb in the protected areas. So the, these areas that don't have any homes on them, but unfortunately have lost cows is a wildlife management um, technique. 
were the most invasive plant communities of all the three different land uses. So anyhow, that paper was published in Conservation Biology and it set in motion this sort of ever increasing momentum for people across the American West to take a second look at cattle ranching as a land use. And heretofore, it had been sort of classified as, well, you can't support biodiversity of conservation value and cows at the same time on the same piece of land. And, and, and this, is, this has been sort of gradually transforming increasing numbers of urban, suburban, and rural people's perspectives that maybe livestock grazing in the American West is one of the few sustainable land uses the American West has ever seen. So, so that was a long way tip of, uh, of answering a very simple question. No, that's good. I, one of the quotes that I like is from Jim Corbett, I believe is where it came from. Uh, and I believe the quote is, is that ranching now represents one of the only, one of the only livelihoods that, that is a true interdependence between man and nature. Is he, he was part of the Quivira Coalition, is he not? Jim Corbett was uh, kind of a mentor of Nathan Sayre, who's Department Head of Geography at Berkeley. And I think you've done a podcast with him. Jim passed away. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure, but hmm. it was maybe around 10 or 12 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, Corbett was very instrumental in the formation of the Malpai Borderlands Group. And I've sat yep. on their science board for the past 25 years. One of the uh, introductory pieces in the in the paper that you wrote that is uh, a, that is from the the plenary session that you gave at the Society for Range Management in 2007 is kind of a thesis statement that I think sets a good backdrop for what we're going to talk about. Uh, you say that ecologically, ranching as a land use is compatible with the natural heritage of the West. It keeps lands open and stewarded. It keeps human densities low, and it safeguards private lands from fragmentation. Economically, ranching provides homegrown food, pays its own way, and supports a fiscally responsible economy. Culturally, ranching covers a time frame dating back over 400 years, one of the oldest land uses that Euro-Americans have given the New World. So a natural alliance exists between urban consumers of food and open space and the rural producers of food and open space. Regretfully, this logical symbiosis has waned during past decades. A strong rural-urban partnership is as essential to a healthy West as is a strong public-private land connection. As these relationships deepen, so too will the health of the human and natural communities of this region. Uh, you, you wrote that probably in 2006 in preparation for this meeting in February of 2007. That was uh, a decade and a half after cattle free by 93. You know, my sense is that this was a slogan that was used to express the frustration by at least a segment of the population, uh, the, the U.S. population, that that some of the unsustainable grazing practices that did lead to some widespread plant community degradation across parts of the West either had not changed enough or that we had not seen some of that degradation reverse in the decades under more proper grazing. Uh, but that that really, 
I think set us up for some uh, really socially antagonistic situations through the the nineties and and part of the aughts. And I, I see that with many of the older ranchers that I work with, uh, they have a pretty aggressive stance toward uh, toward environmentalists. And if your livelihood is at stake, uh, I thoroughly understand that. How much of that? Cattle free by ninety three sentiment is still out there, or are people beginning to respond to this new, uh, you know, to new information that shows that sustainably managed private lands and possibly even some somewhat unsustainably managed private rangelands are still a lot better than almost all of the alternatives. How much of that is still out there? Boy, Tip, um, uh, I actually gave a talk a couple of years ago. Uh, titled, and I have to paraphrase it, uh, it was something like cattlemen today are wearing white hats. They aren't wearing the black hats anymore. <laughs> uh, things have changed so much. So just just getting back to the fact that uh, livestock grazing has de- degraded private and public rangelands, uh, the National Academy of Sciences did an in-depth review and Linda Joyce was the senior author on that review trying to examine the the empirical aspects of livestock grazing harming rangelands and that was the national academy of sciences so that's our preeminent scientific body in the united states of america and that failed to find any effects um Hmm. it's probably convenient for some people to pretend they haven't heard of that study and then tom stolgram who's who's one of the the most distinguished plant ecologist today in the United States. He just stepped down um, at Colorado State. Tom Tom looked at, and and Tom is not pro cows and cattle ranching. Tom Tom's a plant ecologist. Tom Tom care, cares about the health of plant communities. Tom did a mm-hmm. study where he looked at exclosures. So these are fenced out areas on Forest Service grazing leases in five Western states and did these in-depth plant community studies on the exclosures and then the adjacent um, unfenced areas where livestock have grazed, do graze. And Tom found no differences in plant species richness and soil carbon and soil nitrogen in number of invasive plant species. So, so you've got these two mm. definitive studies which throw not just a little bit of cold water, but buckets of cold water on this, this maybe intuitively appealing belief that livestock grazing hurts the natural heritage of the West. So, so, right. so, so that's going on, and then of, and, and then of course the study that we did at Colorado State that is comparing the three principal land uses today of the West: protected areas, areas that uh, support livestock, and areas that support houses. Showing that it was the working cattle ranches that had the neotropical migratory birds, the carnivores, and the native plant communities that we would love to see more of instead of less of. And then what was going on is, and I still don't quite get this, but it was almost like environmentalism was in disarray and decline. All of a sudden, all across the American West, Popping up in watershed after watershed, we started seeing these rancher-initiated and rancher-led collaborative conservation efforts. 
Um, the Malpai Borderlands Group was probably the one that's gotten the most attention. And as I said a minute ago, I've been on their science board since they started. It's a million acre collaborative where urban and rural people are coming together to work darn hard to try to keep the ranchers on the land and keep the housing developments at bay. But mm-hmm. but they were everywhere. I was on the board of the uh, the Blackfoot of the um, uh, Diablo Trust in northern Arizona. I was on the board of the Rancher Stewardship Alliance in eastern Montana. Uh, we actually started one one of these watershed based rancher led uh, collaborative conservations uh, conservation efforts in the four hundred thousand acre watershed that my wife and I live here in the Livermore Valley, north of Fort Collins, but state after state had them. And, and, and all of us, and, and meanwhile, (laughs) um, out of the blue, the Colorado Cattlemen's Association are our nation's first, um, state cattlemen's organization formed the nation's first statewide agricultural um, land trust, the Colorado Cattlemen Agricultural Land Trust. It then inspired, let's see, seven other Western states from Texas to California, to Montana, to Wyoming, to Idaho, Washington, and Oregon to form statewide agricultural land trusts. And now you've got this partnership of rangeland trusts and these these um, 10 Western states, eight Western agricultural land trusts have conserved over two and a half million acres of private land and conservation easements working with 1300 Western ranch families. So, so it's, you know, I think that cattle free by 93 probably has morphed into beef is what's for dinner, open space is what's for dessert. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's actually hard to put your finger on it, but I think it was because our traditional conservation efforts had maybe sort of lost a little steam, had, had uh, skipped a couple of steps, were faltering, and, and ranchers, maybe because it's their livelihoods that were at stake, and maybe because they actually control the private land and maybe because they really ranch for the livelihood. I mean, it's something they hold very dearly. These guys stepped up, these men and women stepped up and they started coming up with all these creative and innovative ways to conserve the Western rangelands. And, and in so doing, of course, tying down open space uh, and producing food and, of course, all that entire rich array of ecosystem services that support human lives and economies. Let me see if I can piece together a string of uh, logic here that kind of sounds like a geometric proof. First, private land nearly across the West is the most productive land and, and therefore the most valuable and at least in the case of ranching operations on those private lands, mo- most of them depend on federal grazing allotments. If if that if federal grazing is restricted in some way, then the economic viability of those ranches is jeopardized uh, because they can't maintain an economy of scale, or the, um, they're too dependent or significantly dependent on those federal acres. So then. If, if that happens, the private landowners who are 
pretty much under economic pressure all across the West to convert to anything other than ranching uh, may do just that. And then if if we have this land conversion to exurban or suburban development, that sets off a cascade of negative of negative environmental effects, uh, some of which you've already identified. Is that chain of events, uh, that string, too long to be legitimate? In other words, is this a slippery slope fallacy where it sounds logical, but the slide isn't actually happening? Or are we seeing that happening over the last 20, 30 years? Yeah. Uh, no, no tip. That's actually a really nice way to connect it. And in fact, I think most everybody understands or appreciates that the American West is blended. It's this incredibly complicated mosaic of private and public lands. And and so, I mean, it's um, it would be great if all the public lands were east of, of Interstate 15 and all the private lands were west of Interstate 15. But virtually every county in the American West has has uh, polygons of private land and public land. So, so not surprisingly, as you point out, the history of an awful lot of cattle ranches across the American West have that historic connection where they have deeded land and then they have this uh, grazing dependency at least part of the year on public lands. And um, and so you've got this public-private bargain, this amazing public-private bargain that occupies a significant portion of, of the American West. So along well, – well, in fact, actually in the southern Rocky ecoregion, which is the whole state of Colorado, the southern – part of Wyoming and the northern part of New Mexico, a study that a graduate student of mine conducted, Colin Talbert, he found out that 43% of the boundaries of our Forest Service and BLM lands, so so imagine all the space of Forest Service and BLM lands in that three-state region, 43% of the perimeters of that public land were private land ranches that had a grazing lease on those public lands. So you talk about, you could almost, I mean, it's melodramatic possibly, but you can almost make the point that the fates of this vast part of the American West are uh, between the, the federal public lands and the private ranch lands are entwined. If 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 you if you broke that connection, that public private partnership that's gone on for over 100 years, if if you severed that, as you say, those private land ranchers don't have enough private land to sustain an economically viable cow herd. And so their alternative is either to really overgraze that that amount of private land they own or sell the ranch. And um, I hope it's not I hope it's Mm -hmm. not news to anybody paying attention today in the American West that when private ranches go up for sale, they often end up in the hands of an unscrupulous developer and reappear as 35 acre ranchettes or in in Wyoming, they could be in 20 acre ranchettes or in Arizona, they could be in five or 10 acre ranchettes. And the tragedy about this is that you've um, now you have, well, there's all kinds of sort of heartbreaks associated with this. But one of them is all of a sudden our public lands are literally being surrounded by rural housing developments. So 
so whether it's the night lights of the ranchettes, mm-hmm. the dogs or the cats or where they dump their garbage or all the invasive plants that are spreading outward from these these home sites onto the public lands, uh, whether it's the public lands trying to do prescribed fires and all the neighboring ranchette owners saying, you're not going to do a prescribed fire. There's there's virtually everything the Forest Service tries to do uh, or the BLM is trying to do is going to be handicapped now because their neighbors, instead of one family on 1,500 acres, it's, you know, it's 150 families. Um, so, so you've got that going on. And of course you've lost the production of food here. Here's the other thing, Tip, and I'm sure you're aware of this. Um, I have noticed that many of my friends are unaware of this. It turns out, um, if you look at the cost to county government to provide services to ranch families versus to small acreage families, um, the um, and and then compare the property taxes that come off those properties to the county, which supports, of course, the county's ability to provide services. It turns out that ranching is the only one that actually generates a surplus, mm-hmm. and that small acreage developments generate a deficit. For example, in my county alone, Larimer County in north central Colorado, they would have to increase the property taxes of small acreage developments 128% to meet the costs of Larimer County government providing services. And whether it's school buses or, or sheriffs or maintaining the roads or replacing the culverts when they get out, compared to... Uh, for every dollar of property taxes coming off a of Larimer County ranch, so for every dollar of property taxes, the county provides on average 15 cents of services. So it actually generates a surplus. So so you've got this ecological sort of um, pressure on the federal lands, and then you've got this economic pressure on the county governments. Uh, both of those are sort of double whammies, and they're not—they're not presenting a West that works. Yeah, ranching is a land use. You know, as you mentioned, it's one of those rare historical land uses that works well culturally, ecologically, and economically. So that's that triple bottom line that we're always trying to elusively search for today in America. Yeah. I'm seeing a campaign slogan in your future. <laughs> so, so, so Tip, I have Rich to, Knight for governor. I, I, increase increase tax 150%. Oh, my God. So when I point that out at um, meetings of our um, with our neighbors, you know, who live on the small acreage properties, they act dumbfounded and they don't believe it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, there has never been a cost of county services study done anywhere in the American West that has found small acreage development property taxes are covering the cost to county in providing services. There is not a single one of those. The American Farmland Trust did did a meta-analysis of all these cost of county services from the east through from the east coast to the west coast, and they couldn't find a single one. So so and for some reason, we we seem to be concerned about the ecological aspects of ranching. Now, now we're starting to appreciate that they're positive, but we tend to ignore the economic aspects of it. And it turns out the alternative to ranches are small acreage developments. And unfortunately, they actually put county governments in the red. 
Mm-hmm. So an amazing study was published this year in the journal Ecological Applications. Um, and Ecological Applications is the applied ecological journal of the Ecological Society of America. That's the preeminent uh, group of scientists that study the ecology of all our lands. And lo and behold, it turns out that private rangelands are twice as biologically productive as the federal rangelands. So, so, so you, you know, if you were going to do um, a return on investment, uh, the place to put your money, of course, would be on the private lands because they are twice as biologically productive. So, um, just maybe think of ecosystem services, or you can think of uh, the depth of the soil. You can think of uh, the elevation in which those private lands occur at. Um, another graduate student of mine actually looked at, did a comparison of um, uh, federal lands where livestock graze and the private ranch lands where livestock graze. And we found out that the private ranch lands had the most, had the uh, the deepest soils were the best watered, occurred at the lower elevations, and were less likely to be steep. So the federal lands were more likely to be steep, were more poorly watered, had had more, um, um, had less rich soil. So, so again, if I put my hat of conservation biologists on and I'm taking an analytical look at the American West, and I'm trying to do an objective analysis, if I want to conserve the natural heritage that is such it's one of the iconic aspects of the American West. And I and and somebody told me, well, we Rick, we have a limited number of natural resource of um, of resources available to actually go out there and conserve lands to ensure the maintenance of the plant and animal communities that comprise the West. You would put your money, you you would put your money on the private lands. The private lands are by far more more productive than our federal lands. So that's kind of an ironic shift on things. I think we tend to think of our federal lands as being where the uh, the grizzly bears and the wolves roam. Well, it turns out the biological diversity is at its richest, at its finest on those private lands. They have the better soils, they're better watered, lower elevations. So this this study, um, I think most ecologists that had been paying attention to Western landscapes, the private and public segments of it, had always appreciated this. But it was these ecologists from the University of Montana that just came out with this paper in ecological applications. Um, that actually sunk the stake, and now we now now we have more empirical evidence tr- that makes the case we really better pay attention to the land uses that are occurring um, on the private lands. And you're probably aware of this: in the American West, about half of the lands in the American West are actually private lands. The state that I live in, Colorado, 63% of the land in Colorado is private land. Across America, it's 61% of America's private land. So um, ranchers are holding down those lands and generating food and also uh, ecosystem services. Um, And I would think the least we could do is give them a tip of the hat. I'd like to go back to the the conservation value of private lands for a moment, which is what we ended up titling our our first episode, uh, kind of on our way to talking a little bit more about the radical center 
and programs that support payments for ecosystem services. Uh, if, if I understand it right, the, the string of logic looks a little bit like this. Private land, uh, because it was settled by people who were looking for productive places that had water, arable soil, uh, everything you could want, is the most productive and valuable. And that many commercial ranches uh, also depend on the adjacent uh, federal or, or state grazing lands to make their, their private commercial ranching operation work. Uh, so if, if federal grazing is restricted, then the economic viability of these private ranches is jeopardized. Sort of separate but related to that is that private landowners are constantly under significant economic pressure to convert. Uh, and many of them uh, do that, and many of them may do just that in the near future. So if, if, and then land conversion to what we might call exurban or suburban development or rural sprawl uh, sets off a cascade of these negative environmental effects, some of which we've talked about. Is that, is that uh, chain of events uh, too long to be legitimate? Is this a slippery slope argument, a fallacy, you know, where, where it sounds logical, but the slide isn't actually happening? Or, or is that actually what we see happening? No, no, Tip. I think that as a generalization, I think that's probably the case. I mean, the way um, we have this incredible in-migration to so many of the Western states and Colorado is just a, a shining example or a glaring example, depending how you feel about exurban development. Um, that's, that's the case. I mean, in in most instances, when a ranch is no, no, no longer economically feasible, the probably the principal alternative use of it, you know, as a generalization is it may very well end up in the hands of a developer. And of course, the developer is going to subdivide it at whatever level uh, state law or county zoning allows. And so, I mean, we, we have in Colorado for... Um, up until the downturn of 2008, and now it's actually coming back because our economy is growing, we, we were losing the size of Rocky Mountain National Park, which is over a quarter of a million acres of private farm and ranch land, almost exclusively to housing developments each year. And so, wow. yeah, and so, and, you know, and as you alluded to, there, is, there has yet to be a cost of government services study done that shows that property taxes off of the small acre ranchettes actually is covering the costs of county government to provide services from sheriffs to school buses. Um, and, and every study has shown that land that stays in farming and ranching is actually generating a surplus because uh, cows don't go to school and corn doesn't need, you know, sheriffs to visit. So, so, and, and then you've got the ecological costs because you're having this, the most biologically productive lands in the American West are then reappearing in houses. And so they're, it's almost kind of like a senseless waste of their capacity to produce food. Um, and uh, someone who's living on a 35 or a 20 or a 15 or a 10 or a five, by and large, their economy in almost all cases is coming from somewhere else. It's not like they're actually, right. you know, they may be ranching the view, but they're certainly not ranching for uh, livestock or or some other crop. 
so how are those private grazing lands, uh, I guess, both quantitatively and qualitatively different from the public lands um, and, and why? Well, the reason why is what you refer to. Um, even though the homesteaders, the vast majority of the homesteaders that appeared on these Western lands um, after the, the initial Homestead Act in 1862, and there were probably a good dozen other Homestead Acts that followed at different frequencies. But um, those, even though those people were tended to be from the well-watered East, could come out and they could look at land and, and have a fair guess on whether or not they had a chance of making a living. And so they tended to not uh, file a homestead claim on the least productive lands, and they tended to seek out the well-watered lands with the deeper soils at the lower elevations that were less vertical and more level. And so it just happened. I mean, you know, we were giving away tens of millions of acres through these different homestead acts. Um, in fact, Heather and I, on part of our place is a uh, tree claim, which gave a homesteader 80 acres if they if they planted. The, they didn't have to live, but if they planted five acres of trees. Um, so, so there were op- obviously an awful lot of problems with the homesteads. A lot of them were dry and they had a haul in water. Uh, a lot of them were much too small in acreage to actually support a family farming or attempting to ranch. But, but those, pro- but those most productive lands were the ones that um, ended up in today's private lands. And of course, the least productive lands are the ones as a generalization that have ended up on our public lands. And I think I've mentioned to you once um, about a paper that came out this year in Ecological Applications that has actually quantified this now. And as a generalization, it turns out our private rangelands are twice as biologically productive as our public rangelands. Yeah, that's really interesting. On on what metrics, for example? Uh, it was on a variety of things like the amount of soil carbon, the amount of soil depth. Um, so, so... So parameters that they could actually um, have some idea of accurate measurements. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that we, and, and by we, I guess I mean uh, people that are somewhat conservation-minded and who were raised in the 80s, 90s, and we're prone to think that, that there's an inverse relationship between the intensity of human use, especially economic or what's sometimes called extractive use, and habitat quality, conservation value, production of ecosystem goods and services. Uh, and that's more related to management, I guess, than, than land type. I can see how, how land type uh, you know, was somewhat um, was, was self-selected by the people who homesteaded, and that makes quite a bit of sense. But I really do think that we have this idea that if people are using it, then it has less, less conservation value. And you know, maybe, maybe an example there is, uh, timber ground, where if you have a forest that's being managed for timber, then then the management is pushing it only toward you know board feet rather than some of the other ecosystem goods and services that we attach to a forest. Uh, but I think you're saying that's not exactly accurate. Well, you, I mean, uh, the case in a forest. Our historical approach to cutting trees was actually to try to maximize the cut. 
And so we, over time, lost sight of the ability to do partial cuts and continue to take trees out of forests for decades and decades and decades. But that, but but capitalism trying to maximize short-term profits, um, and then politics, certainly at least on public lands, got an awful lot of our public forest lands cut in a hurry. So we started cutting white pine in the northeast and moved to the upper Midwest and cut some more white and red pines there. And then we moved to the Pacific Northwest and we cut the Doug fir and the Sitka spruce. And as Jack Ward Thomas once said when he was grilled, being grilled by the U.S. Congress, Congressman, we didn't run into the spotted owl. We ran into the Pacific Ocean. So they just <laughs> cut and cut and cut. The interesting contrast between uh, cutting trees on forests and grazing grass on rangelands is that grass grows on an annual basis. And that, I think, is just possibly the major reason why livestock grazing, as far as Western cultures go, has been the longest land use that that the American West has yet to see. Juan, Juan de Onate, who was a Spaniard, came north from Mexico City in 1598. Uh, in present-day Española and didn't get along very well with the two pueblos down there where the Rio Chamo and the Rio Grande met. And so he moved a few years later and and uh, created the town of Santa Fe. But so for since 1598, uh, these, these Euro European descendants have been grazing livestock in the American West. And I don't know if we, well, I know we don't have a forest actually, private or public, that people have been cutting trees out of in the American West for 400 years. It's just, it is a lot easier to get it right if, if, that, if that grass grows on an annual basis and is harvestable on an annual basis. Trees, of course, are growing every year, but they just, but, but you have to wait 40 years or 60 years or 120 years before you can actually cut them. So, so, so livestock um, in, um, in Western arid rangelands seem to have a, uh, a relationship that has withstood uh, climate change and uh, different economics and different politics. In those days, that was Spain in 15, let's see, in 1590. Eight, it was still Spain, and then in 1821, it became Mexico, and then we took it from them in 1848, and it became the United States. But they still have livestock; they still have sheep and goats and horses and mules and things like that. So, so, um, so it is a sustainable land use, and um, and people can certainly abuse rangelands, and, and there's ample evidence of that. But as a generalization, uh, livestock and cattle ranching have coexisted pretty darn well for over 400 years today in the arid West. Yeah, and I would probably I, – I, this is something that I feel I could back up with, uh, you know, with published science. But I, I, I still maintain that there's this, this hard link between ecology and economy and ranching that, that is – Pretty significant, and my my forestry friends may uh, disagree with this, but I, I can see how in a forest you can manage pretty strongly toward toward one management objective. But in on rangelands, for the most part, with the exception of maybe some true strict shrublands, 
in general, if you're if you're managing for maximum uh, heterogeneity, maximum biological diversity, that is almost always good for forage production and for animal health. Does that seem like a fair characterization? Yeah, and and that graduate uh, student study um, that was conducted at Colorado State, it was Jeremy. My Estes um, and Wendell Gilkert uh, and myself, where we actually compared neotropical migratory songbirds, carnivores, and uh, plant communities on protected areas without livestock and on working cattle ranches at the same elevation, the same soil type, the same plant community. We found out that in all those cases, the carnivore and songbird communities, as well as the plant communities, did better on the on on the cattle ranches um and and you know part of that is our public lands oftentimes for a variety of sort of socioeconomic reasons don't have an active management stewardship uh plan on them because they're understaffed whereas cattle ranches have these these families that actually live on the land and they're watching the plants and the soil and the climate and the livestock and the water and all those things. And so you actually see them, you know, stewarding the land and taking care of the animals at the same time. So it's not surprising. And, and I have to say this, I, I don't mean, mean this in a negative tone, but a lot of our public land manch, our public land managers didn't necessarily grow up in a, in an ecosystem in which they they grew up learning from somebody who might have had 40 or 50 or 60 years of experience paying attention to how soil looks during dry times and how water can fluctuate and how the climate uh, puts particular pressure on a piece of land at certain times of the year. And indeed, might not even know the names or the difference between a cool season grass and a warm season grass and an annual and a perennial grass. So, so ranchers know those things because if they don't, they, they often go out of business. And so, so in some ways, it's almost like a near indigenous base of knowledge that you can't learn on a YouTube video. And you can certainly be exposed to it in a good college range science program. You can definitely be exposed to that, but, but it's hard, it's hard to substitute that for maybe the intergenerational slow knowledge that comes on these family ranches that may have been in the family for over a hundred years or 60 years or even 40 years at time. So, so I, again, I hate talking in these sweeping sort of generalizations, but dare I say that our private rangelands maybe are better stewarded than our public rangelands for, for a variety of reasons that, that I've touched on. Yeah, and, and speaking of generalizations, I want to quote from the uh, from the paper that you published in Rangelands from your keynote speech, Ranchers as a Keystone Species in West It Works. Uh, there's a reference to a, a study which you referenced in our first episode by Dr. Stolgren. Uh, in the paper, you, you say that livestock grazing on public lands is believed by some to threaten biodiversity, but is it? One of the most thorough analyses on the ecological effects of grazing on public lands compared 26 long-term grazing enclosures with similar ungrazed areas on national forests in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and South Dakota, five states. 
The exclosures averaged over 30 years without livestock. The scientists found no differences between the grazed and ungrazed areas in a number of factors. Plant species diversity, covered by grasses, forbs, and shrubs, soil texture, and the percent of nitrogen and carbon in the soil. The authors concluded that, and here you're quoting directly from the Stolgren study, one, grazing probably has little effect on native plant species richness at landscape scales. Two, grazing probably has little effect on the accelerated spread of most exotic plant species at landscape scales. Three, grazing affects local plant species and life form composition and cover, but spatial variation is considerable. Four, soil characteristics, climate, and disturbances may have a greater effect on plant species diversity than do current levels of grazing, which is something that I would say was uh, also backed up by, uh, by Nathan Sayers' book, which examined you know, a century and a half of, of literature. And five, few plant species show consistent directional responses to grazing or cessation of grazing. Cessation of grazing. Those are, those are pretty big findings, but, but I feel like the, the growing recognition of that is the, is the, the reason for the, growing, the rise in the radical center. Is that, a, is that fair? Yeah. Um, I think Americans, I think all of us have been going through, have been trying to find a constructive way through this mythology of the American West and manifest destiny and this whole, this whole um, concept of us Euro-Americans coming West and, and having this belief that the land was pristine. Um, Ecologists have been gradually increasing the sort of tempo and trying to remind us that almost all ecosystems are disturbance prone. And so actually you need to disturb a forest periodically or the forest will turn into something different and you need to disturb a grassland, a shrubland, uh, virtually all ecosystems um, even a riparian ecosystem needs to be flooded periodically or the plant community composition changes. And so, so these, so, so we're, we're, we're starting come to come to the grips with the fact that most of these iconic Western landscapes are disturbance prone ecosystems. That's the way they co-evolved. And that humans now that are worth a sort of dominant player in most of the West we have a responsibility to pay careful attention that that disturbance does actually periodically happen. We have to we um, have to find ways to periodically flood our rivers. And I know this is this is causing a little bit of heat in the heads of some of our listeners because they're thinking, I don't want my home flooded out. And but we're also starting to realize our forests need occasionally to be burned. And that's, of course, ca causing a little bit of consternation with some of the listeners and it turns out our grasslands our grasslands and shrublands need to be disturbed with fire as well as grazing if we can accept these things it turns out walt disney had it wrong but he did a far better job of educating our american publics than <laughs> did ecologists it's not the balance of nature it's nature is in a state of flux it's actually the flux of nature and that's just hard for us because we're we're seeking symmetry and balance and harmony in things. And then all of a sudden, these darn scientists have to tell us, well, I'm sorry, 
we got all these beliefs from the mythology of America and Manifest Destiny and all these things. And then Walt Disney showed up 60 years ago and started, you know, telling us that fires are bad and Bambi's going to be hurt and that it's this balance of nature. Nature's, n- nature stays in a balance and then humans show up and they and they kick it off the pedestal and it's imbalance and humans are bad. It turns out humans can do things poorly and they can also steward lands. I mean, we can overgraze rangelands and, and we can graze appropriately rangelands. And I like to tell my students um, just to be cautious, we can overrest um, rangelands. If, if we take away those disturbances, for example, such as grazing and fire, um, you're still going to have an ecosystem out there, but it isn't going to be what you wished it was or what it had been. So this is all, this is sometimes almost too much to bear to hear all this, that it's really nature is in a constant state of flux. I'll tell you one thing, though, Tip, it's getting easier for Americans to believe this now because this onslaught of Mm -hmm. climatic events, all of us are just witnessing, you know, these catastrophic changes, catastrophic uh, rains and flooding, catastrophic fires, catastrophic droughts. Uh, So so maybe, you know, we're we're trying to develop a different conceptual model of how how nature works. Yeah, and I think even if that, you know, regardless of what people think about global warming or, or global climate change, climate uncertainty, we can call it lots of different things. Um, you know, even if even if the average uh, fire return interval on western rangelands was fifty to hundred years, you know, if we had that, that would mean that on average, and I realize you never have an average year, on average you'd have roughly a hundredth. Of, of the Western acres on fire yeah. every year. Uh, and, you know, if we've been successfully suppressing that for some time, we shouldn't be surprised if, if there's a little bit of uh, catch up that is happening right well, now. Well, there's actually a really interesting paper that just came out in the journal Environmental Research Letters. And what they did was compare forests versus uh, rangelands as carbon sinks for trying to sequester CO2 and minimize um, uh, the green, greenhouse gases accumulating in, in our atmosphere. And of all things, and this is very counterintuitive until you realize the present state of fires to, today in the American West, they're finding now that grasslands and rangelands in California are more resilient carbon sinks than forests. And this has been a shock because everybody understands that forests, I mean, a tree is virtually carbon. Uh, but what is carbon, happening, yeah. yeah, what is happening now is our forests, fortunately or otherwise, are burning uh, the big, bigger fires and they're burning more often. And part of that, you know, is, is, um, putting out fires for, for 40 to 60 years. And part of it is a changing climate. It's hotter and it's drier. And then they found out because when you have grass and rangelands fires, most of the carbon in rangelands is sequestered in the soil and in the root of the plants. 
And so it's the above ground stuff, just like in a forest that burns, but most of the carbon in rangelands is now actually below ground. And so this is something that, you know, I'm sure foresters are saying, no, that's a bogus study. But actually, when you look at um, where the carbon is in a forest, it's the majority, of course, is above ground. And when you look where carbon is in rangelands, the majority is below ground and the roots in the soil. So, so it turns out going into the future, rangelands are going to be a more dependable source of sequestering greenhouse gases than forests. And so I was really surprised when this paper um, was, was recently published. I, th- I think that's not insignificant you know, related to carbon. There's a, there are a growing number of programs, both public and private, that are designed to make payments for ecosystem services. You know that it incentivize good stewardship rather than uh, incentivize non-production, and like like the conservation reserve program, you know CRP morphed over time, but the original impetus was taking marginal land out of crops and planting it to something that would stop soil loss. Now, stopping soil loss is a good goal, but but I think we can do better than that, and in fact we do we we do better than on all healthy range and pasture lands. You know, and these payment for ecosystem services programs are set up to reward good management and leaving intact uh, wildlands, pasture lands intact. Uh, are, are there some examples of, of PES programs uh, near you that, that are worth talking about? Well, so, so ecosystem services came on the scene. Oh, gosh, I've been teaching it in my conservation biology class for 33 years. So it's it's not a new idea, but it's been in the last maybe 10 or 12 years that this concept of ecosystem services, these nature's services that benefit humans. And that's a really most amazing aspect. We're, we're, we're talking about nature services that benefit humans instead of some other species. Um, but in the last 10 or 12 years, they have become extremely um, it's become an extremely popular and appealing concept. The problem is, is so far we're having real challenges trying to link these things that benefit us, our health and our economies. Um, we're having a real hard time trying to link these up with capitalism. And if you can link them up, in other words, if you can put values yeah. on them, capitalism will take care of the rest and we'll have these PES, these payments for ecosystem service programs. And then uh, it's going to be an entirely different card game because all of a sudden, all these things, you know, the breathable oxygen, the recreational opportunities, the flood control, the, the minimizing soil erosion, the providing food, all those things that I think even our most urbanite uh, populace understands are essential to, to our happiness and health. These things all of a sudden are going to have these incredible values. Well, we we can do these estimates and ag economists and ecological economists are coming up with the values of these things. And globally, you know, they say they're worth trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars a year. But the problem is you've got to somehow or another have that business savvy to take something like the soil and the roots of rangelands that sequester CO2, carbon, green, a uh, really important greenhouse gas. How do you actually turn that into a marketplace? 
And, and if we can do that, right. the way we've done with coffee and automobiles and shoes and, you know, everything else, um, then we're going to see this massive shift because it won't be just us tree huggers that are valuing all these wonderful benefits of healthy ecosystems. It's going to be the marketplace. It's going to be capitalism. It's going to be the globe is going to be buying and selling credits. And um, there are some examples. In fact, actually, when you were talking about the uh, CRP program, so that's part of the farm bill every couple of years. Right now, there's about 24 million acres in conservation reserve program. And those are and, and that's and that I mean, that's a payment for ecosystem services. You know, it's comes from from the U.S. budget. And so, in a sense, all citizens in America with through our taxes, which generate the revenue and then they're allocated in these different budget bills. So so that is an existing payment for ecosystem services program. Um, and but that's one of the few. And I'm not saying there aren't others. Um, yeah. You see them in different manifestations. Um, I don't know how many of the listeners uh, were aware in 2013, the state of California came up with this carbon cap and trade. It's a state law. And what they're basically saying is that people that are emitting greenhouse gas, uh, they have to come up with credits. Uh, They have to buy credits from people who are sequestering CO2. And they have to buy those credits mm. from landowners who are sequestering greenhouse gases so they can continue to be allowed to emit CO2 in the atmosphere. So California did that. It's, um, it's something like, I'm just guessing now, it's about $1.4 billion a year. The interesting thing about this payment for ecosystem services, which was created by a state law, and, and California is close to 40 million people, if not exceeding that now. The interesting thing about that law is I think they can purchase up to half of those credits from outside the state of California. And it's my belief they included that in the in that state law because they were concerned on whether or not they could find enough people who could measure the sequestration of, of carbon in their soils and and uh, on their private land. So they said, well, let them let let uh, these businesses in California buy their credits somewhere else. And so that's up and running. Um, I'm trying to think, I think, what was it? The state of Oregon tried to pass one this last election cycle and it didn't pass. I think you're going to see more and more of these uh, appear in states. Um, there's some of these other programs um, there is thing called a grass bank, and you've probably heard of that tip. Um, the Nature Conservancy yeah. owns this ranch up in Montana. It's an old historic ranch, the Matador. And what and what the Matador yep. does is with the neighboring ranchers, if they will steward their lands, so these are all ranch lands. It's a it's a collection of about forty ranchers up there. If they'll, if they'll steward their lands, um, they get so many AUMs on this Nature Conservancy-owned ranch. So that's, that's not like a payment for ecosystem services in cash. It's like a barter for ecosystem services. All the things the, uh, the ranchers do to improve uh, the health of their private lands, to support wildlife, to 
to minimize soil erosion, to increase uh, water quality, all those types of things. They actually get so many animal unit months grazing on this Nature Conservancy owned ranch. So we, we, we started one where I live in northern Colorado. It started off, we called it the Colorado Conservation Exchange. And we did want to make it work on rangelands to, to support the family owned ranches that that still occur around us. We couldn't make it work, so we actually shifted it to our adjacent forests. And now it's called um, Peaks to People. Uh, and it's mainly focused on water quality. Um, our rivers and creeks that run through the forest just to the west of Fort Collins. There are people trying to do these around the world right now. You know, the Nature Conservancy is developing water funds. Um, in, in, in other countries in the world, they're developing these water funds here in the United States. A lot of people, I mean, it's just such a, it's such a classic American challenge where you've got the energy and the creativity of Americans and say, my, my gosh, this is an untapped market. So what we have to do is somehow or another put the pieces together and allow that, um, power of capitalism to actually do good things for nature, to put put some cogs and wheels into that economic juggernaut called capitalism. So it's now actually conserving the things heretofore it's overdeveloped. Yeah, we've that makes me think we've we've mentioned quite a, a long list of things that could be included in in this general category, this umbrella of ecosystem goods and services. Uh in a 2011 paper uh, that you wrote, Josh Goldstein. Who was that with? Josh Goldstein. Uh, you define some of these services. You know, you say that ecosystem services are the benefits that people derive from nature that support and fulfill uh, human life. I think it's interesting that the paper acknowledges that human life is about more than just meeting our nutritional yeah. requirements and having shelter. Uh, but but it goes on to to define ecosystem services based on uh, four general categories that were uh, outlined by the Millennium Ecosystem the Assessment. assessment. Uh, one of those is provisioning services. Yeah, one of those is provisioning services. Uh, the second one is regulating services, uh, such as carbon sequestration or or uh, you know water quality. The third one is cultural services, things like outdoor recreation, hunting. Uh, wildlife viewing, maintenance of traditional lifestyles. Uh, and then the fourth category is supporting services, uh, things that support the other three, things like nutrient cycling, soil formation, uh, and net primary production. Uh, there's, yeah, there's been, there was for a little while uh, a carbon market yeah. on the Chicago Climate Exchange, and I don't, I don't know whether or not that has come back. Uh, but I think I think these are some of the things that people are being compensated for through uh, through conservation easements yeah. as well. Yeah, it's um, yeah the the Chicago Climate Exchange was selling carbon credits um, up and leading to President Obama being elected because a lot of speculators were thinking there would be finally a federal law passed, um, and there was a federal law passed, but it was for health. 
uh, care and, and not um, greenhouse gases. And so, so the, uh, the for, for, for a while, a metric ton of carbon, I think, was going for $14 a metric ton. And you could buy and sell them. And the Chicago Climate Exchange is still there, but it's morbid right now. It isn't active. But there is something that is stepping in. And this is, um, I th- well, yeah, I know you're, you're aware of this. So the farm... The Farm Foundation has created this program to incentivize conservation agriculture. And um, this entire um, this entire initiative, it's multi-year, it's to actually incentivize um, conservation agriculture. So so you're farming, you're holding on to your soil, you're uh increasing uh, the quality of water, you're maintaining wildlife habitat, you're sequestering greenhouse gases and all these things. And they're, they're actually, they're having their first kickoff next week. It's going to be in DC. Um, and they have an agenda which stretches out here. Let me just, I'm checking the actual here on this thing. Well, it's stretching out. It's stretching out a number of years, mm-hmm. and they've signed up as partners: McDonald's, General Mills, Cargill, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, the Nature Conservancy, and other sort of big players in in what goes on between people and land. And they they are. I mean, it's by far the most serious attempt on a, a, a sufficiently large scale. To, to try to come up with protocols, because that, that's the other thing. When you think about it, if you're going to develop an economic marketplace, somebody's going to have to be coming up with protocols so you can make sure there isn't fraud going on there and there is quality um, in, in the products. So they're, they're taking the long-term approach to this right. and they're going to come up with the protocols and they'll have different launches at different phases of this thing. Um, by 2021, which is not that far off at all, they're going to try to ski to to achieve scale in priority areas in America. And um, time, time will tell. I actually, I have no doubt um, knowing Americans and their ability to create and uh, to kind of link into capitalism, this incredible power of capitalism that seems to transcend whatever form of government you have. You could be, you know, communist Russia or democratic America <laughs> and capitalism is still the the economic system. I'm absolutely convinced Americans are going to play a leading role in this. And decades from now, you'll probably see these payment for ecosystem services uh, springing up from coast to coast, probably around the world. You'll probably have courses in business schools. There'll probably be an MBA with, you know, a concentration in payment for ecosystem services and, and things like that. In fact, it'll be, it, it may very well sort of track that exponential increase in organic food. And you still remember, Tip, when you could go in any grocery store in America and you couldn't find an organic food item on a shelf. And today you go into, to, you know, the most large oh, yeah. scale and commercial food chain, and there's going to be a lot of, of organic choices. So it's probably going to mirror that, you know, be one of those things. Um, and, and with our increasing population, our increasing uh, dynamics of climate, our increasing the sort of unintentional 
side effects of technology, this increasing standards of living in other developing countries. The the earth is finite <laughs> and our lives and our economies are dependent 100 um, percent directly or indirectly on, on on these nature's services. You know, the quality of our lives and and our livelihoods yep. directly or in indirectly. And so I, th- I think the urgency is probably going to, you know, fairly soon within 10 years, it's going to round that exponential curve and just skyrocket. Yes, I think you're right. You know, one of the things that we see now is the the declining differential between conventionally grown uh, produce or and and organically grown produce, which helps to make it a little more mainstream. And I think I think the increasing cost of crop inputs is also driving some of that change. You know, there's a, a major movement toward integrating livestock back into cropping systems. Uh, largely driven by the increasing cost of synthetic nitrogen and i think i think that kind of thing is going to continue yeah, yeah you know um your podcast is principally about rangelands and ranching as a livelihood wallace stegner who is one of the most sort of learned people writing about people in the american west um in his essay called crow country he was talking about ranchers up there and um, out there on the plains of Montana, and he called them a near indigenous culture. Uh, the the indigenous people obviously lived mm-hmm. in the American West for for thousands of years, and they survived until they were partially displaced by the Europeans that came over and spread westward. But but. Since we arrived on the scene, by and large, we have not had a land use that has lasted for over 100 years, let alone two or three or 400 years. And ranching mm-hmm. fits well yeah. in the arid landscapes. Um, you can overgraze and you can undergraze, of course, and the challenge is to graze appropriately. And it's a dynamic environment. It's not the balance of nature. It's a flux of nature. I mean, all of us that live in the West wonder every year as we go into spring, will this be the will this be the year that kicks us back into a 10-year drought or into a mega drought, you know, a 100-year drought? All of us live with that sort of thing. But, but I think people that work at the interface of soil and water and plants and animal and livestock, they probably have a more genuine appreciation and understanding of that. It's, you know, as I said earlier, it's that slow knowledge. It's not stuff that you can go and watch a YouTube video and learn, uh, learn how to do it. It's intergenerationally transmitted, you know, from parents to children. Um, and I think it's got staying power. I think it may be in some of the most uh, extremely drought-ridden parts of northern Africa, there's still pastoralists in those landscapes. And they're, they're finding a way to per- persist. And I think I, – I really do think we probably have a lot we could learn from uh, Western ranchers. Yeah, on that note, I would like to, to plug your book. Uh, you can just put the check in the mail. You wrote a book – a decade or so ago called Ranching West of the 100th Meridian. Am I right about yeah. the date on that? 2002. Yeah. Island Press. Uh, in the preface, you say that this book joins the ever-widening effort to promote conversations over the role of ranching in the West because our contributors to the book believe that ranching can be more 
ecologically sustainable, more economically viable, and more culturally robust, we share a hope that, that they, the SAS, and you, the reader, may help speed the transition to a ranching tradition that is better than before. We did not invite riders who have no room for livestock in their new West, nor do we invite those who have no room for public lands because of their private property rights hysteria. Our contributors are from the Radical Center. They prize a mix of people with long-term tenure on the land, healthy grasslands and streams, and a public-private blend of lands. The goal of this book is to examine family operations whose thinking and working are linked to the land through husbandry and stewardship. We hope that these poems and essays help to revive a conservation attitude that has been withering for 50 years or more. Environmentalists have been attacking ranching from a perspective detached from the land. Conservatives have been striking out in anger at anything that hints of cooperation and collectivism. In response, ranchers have been wondering why no one seems to see that they not only produce food that we need, but also guard open space that we covet. If the conversations offered here are reasonable and address our ecological commitment to the land, our cultural commitment to American society, and the economic role ranching plays in sustainable food production and land conservation, then perhaps this book will contribute usefully to the ongoing debate on the future of the New West. Uh, I've, I've become a fan of Wendell Berry, and I'd like to think that, that he would be a fan of this book. Uh, when you talk about the Radical Center, are you meaning that <laughs> radical people are moving to the center and, and that that's therefore growing? Or does it mean that people who are already in the no, center are well, becoming more it, vocal? Kind of. <laughs> it's, uh, we call it radical just because it's a radical idea in America for people to actually cooperate. You know, uh, American historians say we um, – this amount of polarization that has continued to increase for over 20 years in America is about as bad as it was on the eve of the Civil War. And so the thought of actually working yeah. together for a stronger America is very, very sadly a radical thought today. And and that's, that's why it was radical in our term. And actually, um, the interesting thing, this whole food and open space, um, agenda right now in America is evident is evidence that the radical center seems to be catching on. I recently was the master of ceremonies at a Colorado cattleman agricultural land trust annual barbecue in Salida, Colorado. And we were fundraising. It was um, it was after dinner and before we asked people to get their checkbooks out and make a donation to try to conserve more of these productive uh, private ranch lands in Colorado. But I thought I was, I was speaking to the audience about this concept of working in the middle for a better America. And I asked, um, it was, a, it, it was a big gathering. Uh, it was a big old tent on this beautiful ranch and the uh, sun was starting to go down. I asked them how many of them came from urban areas and it was about half the hands, which surprised me. And then, of course, I deduced and, and was confirmed by asking who came from rural landscapes. And it was, it was about the other half of the tents occupants. And I said, this is the Radical Center. We're all here tonight. There's plenty of red people in this audience and there's probably some blue people in this audience. But we're all here tonight. and We're about to write checks to conserve open space. So it can stay in its productive capacity. 
and it it it's out there. It um it doesn't get a lot of attention in mainstream media because I guess it doesn't you know it's not sexy or it doesn't bleed to lead the way uh, some journalists uh, speak disparagingly about journalism today. But 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 when you look at I'm not sure if I ever shared this with you, Tip. It turns out that open space tax initiatives, and these are usually ballot initiatives where people agree to increase their sales tax and the money goes to conserving open spaces, a lot of it through conservation easements. They pass at higher rates than school bond ballot initiatives. Americans care more about conserving open space than they do seemingly about their kids' educations. And then on top of that, you've got this parallel movement in farmers' markets and community-sported agriculture and this whole food, natural food, organic food, whatever food movements. So I think food and open space, that's what ranchers do. They tie down open space. Uh, those undeveloped stewarded lands are generating ecosystem services that support our health, our happiness, and our economies. And they're keeping the land out of development. So, you know, it's those developed lands that, of course, that can't produce ecosystem services. It's the stewarded open spaces that actually do. So, so I, I think, you know, like you hint at, I think more and more of the red blue tribes, the rural and the urban people that uh, seem every year to be more intent on one destroying the other. When it comes to ranching as a land use and food and open space as products, I think there's hope in the radical center in the future of ranching. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, relating to something you said a little bit ago, I would agree that the level of polarization over a whole host of political issues is almost at the fever pitch that we saw leading up to the Civil War, based on you know some of my historical reading of what was going on at the time of the Civil War. Uh, and <laughs> the, <clears throat> the, the greater likelihood of people passing a bond that supports open space and and ecosystem goods and services doesn't surprise me because people know that they're going to get results from from open spaces and <laughs> I'm a bit of a critic of public schools not of public yeah. education but but of the way that we're doing it right now and that doesn't surprise me my own community which is not very large there have been <laughs> numerous failed school yeah. bonds because people don't trust yeah. that they're going to get a result that they're going to get anything yeah. out of that money and and I think that this is really encouraging uh, people agreeing on 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 food, on open space, and on um, maintaining intact ecological systems that that really truly do uh, provision human life in in every way that we can think of. You know, when we talk about when you start defining and listing out the things that we include under under ecosystem goods and services, yeah. it really is everything um, and and that's that's not a that's not a small thing um, just a quick question before we before we start to wrap up what was the impetus for writing this book and for collecting some other authors to assist with with this book ranching west of the hundredth meridian um, 
So that's um, uh, uh, the listeners won't won't know this, but a third of the book is devoted to the economics of ranching, and a third is devoted to the ecology of of ranching, of rangeland science, and a third is devoted to the culture of ranching. And um, I had this epiphany. I, I was a typical product of the American Natural Resource College education system. I, I had my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD from the American South, from the American Midwest, from the Pacific Northwest, all in wildlife biology. And the mantra in all those classes, 14 years of college, where people were the problems. And, and, and we had to draw yeah. a line in the sand like we were at the Alamo and, you know, and, and, and we weren't going to let people cross it and harm our nature and kick nature, mother nature out of her balance. And I guess after sort of decades of being still keeping a hand in practicing conservation, I started realizing, and, and of course, continuing to teach at Colorado State. I realized what was missing in our educational system. We were giving them the environmental, the ecological information, but we were leaving out the human dimension and the economic dimension. And I just, um, it, it actually took place at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. Gary Nabhan had done a book uh, and I had contributed a couple chapters in there on private lands and the audience was really grilling us because they had a bunch of academics up there and so-called probably pointy heads and environmentalists. And, 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 and all of a sudden it occurred to me, yeah, we just focus on the environment and we leave out people. Well, how successful is any conservation initiative going to be if it's not economically grounded and if it completely leaves out the culture and livelihoods of people? Well, what you're going to guarantee yourself, you're going to be in constant conflict. There's going to be you, you on one end of the rope in this tug of war, um, the ecological dimension, the wildlife biologists. And then at the other end of the rope are going to be all the people and their economies and livelihoods. <laughs> and that's where it's going to end up, right? It's going to be this yeah. tug of war, uh, this tug of war. And that, that, that way of looking at conservation with just the environmental or ecological dimension is only half a loaf. I guess it's actually, it's only one third of a loaf and that's just wrong. And so <laughs> it dawned on me in this thing that I was pursuing, which was trying to understand, understanding the ecological effects of ranching and realizing we're losing it because, you know, this land is worth so much more an acre to a developer who's going to break it up than it is to a rancher who's, who's, uh, who's grazing livestock that I realized we've got to, we've got to start in the same sentence, have the economic dimension, the human dimension and the ecological dimension. And so that was a, that was truly a novel book. No one had done that before back in those days. They hadn't, they hadn't blended the three of them together conservation that works in Wendell Berry's words is conservation that works for people and for the land. And in Aldo Leopold's words, things that benefit yep. one at the expense of the other are not conservation. There's something else. So if people grow poor and the land grows richer, that's preservation. If the land grows poor and people grow richer, that's exploitation. Neither of those are conservation. So, so, you know, the genesis of that book was this, 
this realization that we've got to stop teaching a single dimension because it's not enough. And in fact, we're educating all those kids. They're going out there and becoming conservation practitioners, and they're not realizing you've got to find balance uh, between people's livelihoods, people's the you know families and and communities as well as the ecology that you learn in college and when you have those things in balance i i will say doing conservation that way is harder and it takes longer but there's that saying i'm not sure if you've ever heard it if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together and <laughs> i have heard that yeah and and so so that was so that book was just an opportunity to blend all three of those equally important dimensions over a topic that that I was that I was hoping was going to succeed. I hope ranching continues to survive another four hundred years as a land use in the American West. Well said, and I can't think of uh, any better sentiment to close us out. If if people want to purchase your book, we're gonna we're gonna put some of the links to the papers on the show notes, uh, both on the website and in iTunes. But if people want to buy your book, do you have a recommendation for where they should go to purchase it? Well, and so I, I guess I'm part of the uh, the global economy. I just <laughs> Google, and I usually pick Amazon because they've got my credit card number, and then I buy the one click thing. But yeah, you can Google it, and it'll come up. Uh, the The book is sold out. What Island Press is doing now, it prints copies of it on demand, so mm-hmm. so it's still available. I still buy copies and give to to ranch families that I meet. Well, that would explain why it took a week and a half for mine to get to me. Uh, I have not read the whole thing yet, but the preface and the introduction have me hooked. So I'm looking forward to reading uh-huh. that over the next couple of weeks. And Thanks, Tim. Uh, Rick, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it, it's, it's been a pleasure, and you're providing a really important service, and thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Mm-hmm.